Hi, Carrie Lynn. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm excited for our monthly conversation. Today, we have someone that I haven't had the pleasure of crossing paths with in probably two decades. But one of our loyal listeners reached out and suggested we get in touch with her, Gay Hansen. Hmm. How do you know Gay? Well, I met Gay when I was working, well, I still work there at the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health. And Gay was on board doing some work with Dr. Mary Lou Kelly around improving a palliative approach to care in Indigenous communities. And Gay and I share an interest in grief. So that's kind of how we connected. But Gay is a blue flowing water woman. And she's now based in the Whitehorse Yukon. Here's hoping that the fires are okay up there. And she has 25 years in the practice and teaching of shamanism. And I think we're gonna be really excited to speak with Gay today, Carrie, because she mixes her experiences as a healthcare policy analyst, a researcher, a grief expert with her shamanistic knowledge and practices. Carrie, I am super excited to hear Gay talk about her shamanic practice and how she accompanied a friend of hers who used MAID at the end of life. So let's get the conversation started. Sounds great. Well, welcome, Gay. We're so glad that you've agreed to join us for our conversation today. Can we just start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes. So I'm a woman born and raised uh, first part of my life in northern Manitoba. I have Cree ancestry and mixed other ancestry. Uh, so very much a Manitoba Métis. And, uh, and then my father lived with the federal government. So we lived all over Western Canada. And I settled in the Yukon uh, in 1990 and came to work with the Yukon government and then subsequently left government a few years later. And I've been consulting from Whitehorse since then. And I took out the shamanic practice in the mid-90s uh, at the same time as there was a lot of transition in my life, leaving government and a, a marriage split, and was reaching for a foundation and found shamanic practice. And so now I have a rich life that includes my daughter and her husband and two grandchildren that live in Edmonton. And I'm sort of back and forth and have just been through a period of being in, very embedded in their lives due to health crisis and recovery. And so I'm just in the process of reconstructing my life yet again. It's happened a few times in my life with the base here in Whitehorse. Nice. And Whitehorse, when we were chatting before we started recording, is doing okay with the fires because I know that is something that has been challenging many Canadians this summer. Absolutely. We've been very fortunate. We've certainly had worse summers, uh, but we do have our thoughts and prayers with all of the other people being affected by fires, we are affected, but right now I can look across the street, which is lovely. Okay, well, thank you for that update. And we too will hold everybody who is challenged with the fires uh, across Canada right now in our thoughts. Um, Gay, you mentioned about being a shamanic practitioner, and I know that that is something that is new to me, despite the fact you and I have crossed paths, uh, what, a couple of decades ago? Um, and I know I have friends uh, and colleagues who have benefited of being part of your groups. But can you tell our listeners a little bit what a shamanic practitioner does or what does that mean? Well, the practice of shamanism is very connected to nature, connected to the elements, connected to sort of all living things. So it is the practice of paying attention to and working with energy. 
and the body in the energetic body of a person in all of their connections between people and between people in the natural world. And so there are the main kind of practice is a shamanic journey. And so that's done with a drum and just a repetitive beat that's actually pretty close to a fetal heart rate. And it's universal throughout the world, uh, shamanic practice and access to non-ordinary reality through the shamanic journey. Uh, and throughout the world, not everybody uses drums. Uh, in the jungle, drums wouldn't last very long, so they use hollow logs, but also chanting and rattles and different ways of of uh, helping the human being access other brain states. So it's a very relaxed state, but very aware. And a shamanic journey is quite different than a meditation in that it's full of richness. So it has its own geography, it has its own occupants. Uh, we connect with power animals, with spirit guides, with different geographies throughout the world and beyond. Um, and it really has a place of being able to travel anywhere, connect with any wisdom that has ever existed, exists now or exists into the future. So I've found it for many years now, a very powerful practice and a very communal practice that when you put people together uh, in a room, if you're lucky outdoors, if you're really lucky and on Zoom, if you need to, um, you can make some amazing connections across distances. And so I do work with people in person and also at a distance. And it's amazing how even a stranger at a distance, you know, you can reach out. And when you make that connection, I always get a, a, a very clear sense of what state the person is in. And so it really, in some ways, defies time and space. I bet. I bet. And when you talked about that, that energy, um, what it really reminded me of is way back when, when I was a social worker on our local hospice unit here in Thunder Bay and sitting bedside was one of the first times I was physically present when somebody went from living to dead and actually feeling that shift of that energy in that person leave the body in a physical way that I did not appreciate probably until that moment, the power of energy. Absolutely. Well, my um, absolutely beloved teacher, Manfred Lucas, was German. So this is a universal practice. It's not fundamentally an indigenous practice. And he and his wife of 60 years split twice before she passed. And she split and then they came back together. And then he was with her when she passed uh, a few years later. And uh, they had completely reconciled at that point. There were children uh, in Germany through the Second World War, so they had a lot of history together as well as, you know, from their childhoods. And uh, so he was actually holding her hand when she passed, and her last gift to him was she passed through his body. And because of his advanced spiritual practice, he was able to experience that as pure ecstasy. And so, of course, the nurse walked in, and he was just bursting with this ecstasy. And the nurse says, but sir, but sir, your wife is gone. Uh, she's passed away. And, and he's just exploding with this, this bliss, literally. Yes, I know. <laughs> and, uh, so he often told the story of that experience because that was also the experience he shared with her. That was her experience of passing was that ecstatic, blissful um, burst of energy. And uh, so, so it just is a, is a beautiful way of thinking about our passing. Very beautiful. Thank you. Yes, very beautiful. Um, the next question I have for you is specifically about 
medical assistance and dying. But what you've done too by uh, sharing those initial thoughts um, is you made me think about the idea that with medical assistance and dying, that it's sort of like uh, death has been orchestrated in a sense because there have been things put into place because there's really um, a sense of time and space, which of course is contrary to what you've just shared with us. However, listening to you talk about Manfred Lucas and his experience, I'm wondering if, if at all or how your shamanic practices align with medical assistance in dying. I believe that spiritually all deaths are orchestrated. And what medical assistance in dying does is it gives us our human control and some tools and methods that were not available to us before. And so I believe that it's just one more way of using instruments or tools to orchestrate death. And I've had, you know, a number of experiences that really demonstrate to me that, that there is often a bigger plan at play, um, you know, that is a, a spiritually driven, a spirit-led process. And so for me, my beliefs, and especially after being through a maid ceremony with a dear friend, um, it just really to me exemplifies how we as human beings have that self-determined ability to direct our path and, and really direct our path to death and beyond. And some of us want and desire and exercise more sort of outward looking control on that than others. And I was just talking with a friend today about the experience we had with our friend. And one of the things that we did is sat with her as she designed five ceremonies and she could define the playlist and she could define who she wanted there and she could define her own sense of food, drink and water. And she was someone who loved to create, you know, sort of invite friends into a space. So for her to be able to design those ceremonies with us was just a parting gift to herself as well as to others. And we we were talking about it today that it was, I mean, every song that was played, many of the words that were spoken, it was our friend that designed all of that as a kind of a parting gift to her friends. And uh, so to me, it is absolutely aligned. And my experience of connecting with people that have gone beyond uh, in spirit And some people are more present than others, but uh, Manfred is very much part of my daily life in spirit, and uh, as is my parents in a different way and at a different level. And I've had others that I've been involved in their passings, and they've been around for kind of, um, you know, often about a year or so, and then they'll fade. And I had one uh, dear friend that I was involved in his death that was not a made death. But I remember the first time I actually laid hands on him to do energy work. And this is uh, probably 25 years ago. So when I was just moving from the midwife into the death walker role, and many of us have walked that path. And I was working with him uh, doing extraction work, with, which is one of our ceremonies for removing energy. And I thought, there's something really familiar about this energy. I could feel it in my hands. And I realized it was the same energy as newborns. He had one foot on the other side at the end of life, and it was just palpable how similar it was. And part of my role in his last week of life was I do extraction work, energy work, and that, because he had, had a lot of distension. He was dying of cancer, and it had metastasized, and I would do energy work no matter what time of the day or evening I showed up, and immediately the distension would fade. He would 
often have, you know, a bowel movement or something and everything would shift and he would be so much relieved. And it didn't matter if it was 10 o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the afternoon. So it's, it's hard not to believe it's real when there's that kind of quite immediate effect. And the last time I worked with him was in the evening and I was told to leave my medicine bag with him that he was going to, he was going to depart that evening. And it was really, really clear. And one of his ancestors showed up in the journey to guide him across his great-grandfather. And I walked out of the room and told his father about this great-grandfather that had shown up in the ceremony. And he was a very grounded engineer. And he looked at me and he says, well, how did you know about my grandfather? And I said, I, I didn't know anything about the grandfather. And the name had come through and the physical appearance and everything. And so it allowed this man to believe that there was ancestral support and that there was uh, real love that his son was departing into. And, uh, and he passed in his 40s, so he wasn't done yet. That is a beautiful image. And you also used some beautiful words earlier on that really struck me. Um, you talked about the maid ceremony, and we've done a number of interviews with this podcast and in the research that we do where people refer to maid as the procedure. We did the maid procedure. And I'm seeing you wince. And I'm wondering, how do you see the differences between maid as ceremony and maid as a procedure? No one should have to die of procedure and with procedure. Uh, it feels mechanical. It feels clinical. It feels cold, frankly. When we're doing a procedure, we're focused. We are in our heads. We're not necessarily in our hearts. And we're doing something that we're capable of doing with our medical skills. And to me, when someone is passing, they need to be wrapped in love uh, to the extent that we're able to provide for that. And it helps them to feel safe, but it also helps uh, to invite the support that's coming in from spirit into that space. Because to me, I see it as a handing off. So the fact that we have that person in our hands, we're handing them off. So absolutely, the ceremony, and it doesn't have to be a big, elaborate, fancy ceremony. Many of us grew up with organized religion where it needs to come from a big, fat book of some description, and, and someone with special clothes and a special title needs to somehow lead the ceremony, and that we're kind of told that somehow our relationship with creation needs to be brokered. And that's not my belief. Uh, I believe that our relationship with creation is a very direct relationship. And that some of us have the invitation and the gift to be able to help support that relationship. So the role of the ceremonialist, and for me, I've done weddings as well. I mean, it's that ability to work with someone to design something that is perfectly right for them. And it really is all of the senses. It's what do you want to be looking at? What do you want to be hearing? What experiences do you want to have? What people do you want around you? So it's, it's the same consideration of the design of ceremony as it would be if it was a wedding or some sort of a naming ceremony. Thank you. That's so interesting, Gail. Not long ago, we had a, a guest on our podcast who moved also from obstetrics to palliative care and end-of-life care and said a very similar thing about how they felt that they wanted to call made procedures more like deliveries, but in a, a much more sort of concrete way, in a much more sort of literal way, if you will. And I, I love that you shared that in a sense that's much more spiritual or infused with some, some otherness that, that 
you know, that I'd love to sort of sit and think more about. You've talked a lot about being involved in ceremonies of all kinds. What are you hearing about made in Whitehorse specifically, specifically made and about medical assistance and dying? Are people accessing it? Uh, what are you hearing in your circles? Uh, well, certainly um, I, I have a background as a nurse and a policymaker in the health system. And so I'm to some extent plugged into that piece as well. And I think there's just a deep acceptance by anyone who I've talked to about having access to MAID. And, and it, it is something that it's important that it's optional and that it is someone's choice. And in talking to one of the palliative care physicians that assisted my friend, uh, there were two palliative care physicians in the room when we did the final ceremony, the actual maid ceremony. And they were saying that about 70% of the people they work with have all the maid preparation done, but they don't end up activating it, uh, that they do end up dying naturally. But it's sort of um, an assurance that they receive having had it there. And, and I had two friends within a month die of lung cancer. And certainly one of the, the motivating factors for both of them putting MAID in place, one activated, one didn't, uh, was the breathing. And the fact that they didn't want to be at a place where breathing just became impossible. And they didn't want to die on a respirator. And they had put those provisions in place. And I was talking to another friend this morning that was involved with our friend um, who did access MAID. And it was, you know, this sense of, is she activating the decision too early? And we talked about the fact that she actually needed capacity and strength left in her life force reservoir to be able to uh, make the decision, enact the decision, and do that with certainty. She was wise enough to know that if she waited too long, that she may not be able to kind of keep her nerve up to be able to actually go through it with as much awareness and and true beauty as she did, uh, that she was able to relate to the people that were there. And the death occurred in the midst of COVID. So there were many limits on the people that could be there as part of that maid ceremony. But then there was also a celebration of life. And there was also an ashes ceremony. And there was also the dedication of a bench on the uh, Yukon River. And there was also the actual cremation ceremony. So she had input into five ceremonies before she passed. And some of them were very simple, but she was able to put her stamp on this is where I want this, you know, bench, or this is where I want the ashes, and this is who I want involved, and this is how I want it to happen. And she was someone who enjoyed that degree of control, and she had a beautiful husband that was just devastated and knew better. Is to try and take control over those things in terms of her last wishes. And so he was very supportive, very loving, and very sweet, you know, and involved in everything. And she didn't have children, and uh, most of her family's in Europe. So we were back and forth to her family in Europe, and they weren't able to come or attend, but they were very present. And so we were able to sort of have um, live connection. And one of the things we did is taped a tribute from her family in her first language, uh, a European language. And so part of what she heard as her last inputs was blessings from her family in her home language. That sounds beautiful and meaningful. And sounds like this was a woman who had a lot of strength in her life reservoir um, throughout her life, but also at her end of life. and. 
one of the oh, arguments against medical assistance in dying that I've heard is that it's almost an easy way out when people don't want to allow natural death and some of the, both the meaningful but challenging moments that happen. And when you said your friend had strength in her life reservoir to make all these plans to provide guidance and contribute to these ceremonies both at the end of her life and following the end of her life. To me, that sounds like the choice to access medical assistance in dying for many people can potentially come from a source of strength. Absolutely. That was the case for her. It was very much a sense of strength and a sense of uh, uh, I have the capacity and I choose to exercise that capacity with my own will on my own time frame and as I choose. And I'm also willing to navigate and negotiate that with loved ones so that I'm not doing something that completely disregards their wishes. And, and I think the only wish in the end was just that they, everybody had more time. And so there was a bit of a shock when, okay, you know, she dropped the hammer, as it were. And, and then I think that it was three days between when she made the decision and all the arrangements were made. And uh, everybody was, well, you know, is it too early? And it was like, it might be too early for you. It's not too early for me. And it's my call. <laughs> Duh. And so she was very sure. And I think that really helped all of us because of her certainty. She wasn't looking to us to make the decision. You know, she consulted everyone that she needed to consult, you know, in terms of her circle. Um, but, you know, it was her call and everybody respected the fact that it was her call. And so then our job was to rally around and help make the arrangements. Thank you. I want to continue on hearing about this person and her family. And I really want to kind of uh, shift our discussion to grief and what that would look like. You've mentioned that family being uh, across the pond, we're in a time of COVID where even, you know, even living down the street from somebody, we didn't necessarily have access to other human beings in person and so forth. I myself, my uncle died during COVID uh, alone in a hospital. So this is a, a sort of personalized question for me. Um, is maid-related grief in your feeling, in your sense, different than, say, grief for a natural death? I think it's, you know, and, and I mean, grief is never easier or harder. Grief is grief, and it's, it's unique to all of us. We all have to walk our own path through it. And I like the notion that grief is the individual experience. Bereavement is the community experience. So part of what uh, happened with this friend was that she built a community between people who didn't necessarily know each other really well, but she had time to build those connections and those supports around uh, some of the people that she knew would need support after she left. So part of what she was able to leave is a, is a legacy of capacity. But we also then had time to, to prepare and we had time to have those conversations with her. Unfortunately, there were people that would have loved to have seen her. Uh, and she was in hospital in the days leading up to her maid ceremony. And because she was in hospital, she wasn't able to see people. And I think she actually made that decision specifically, that she was fundamentally an introvert. She needed some time in her own thoughts prior to the ceremony. And I think at some point, she just wanted to turn off people traffic in her life. And everybody wanted to see her one more time. And some people did not have that opportunity. 
And so I think that there was pain involved in that. And I, I think as much as she never said it, it was like, okay, is this about you or is it about me? And uh, so she was meeting her own needs and rightly so. And, and certainly those of us who were left behind then banded together. We did uh, manage a, a celebration of life. And there was also ceremony in Europe. Uh, her family got together and did different things. So there was a number of different ceremonies, uh, people coming together to share in the loss. And thankfully, her husband had family in Saskatchewan. Basically, he ended up moving back to Saskatchewan. And that worked out really well for him as well, leaving the family home and all of the familiar pieces for him. He just needed a fresh start. And that was a really good fresh start for him. I appreciated what you said about grief being somewhat of an individual experience and bereavement being the community experience. And I'm wondering, in terms of sharing about the maid ceremony, in terms of your friend who accessed MAID and the ceremonies that you created together, but the wider community. You talked about the people who are visiting and some of the work that we've done. People have come up against the stigma around medical assistance in dying, that not everybody is for it, um, that there are varying um, opinions. And sometimes grief can become more complicated when the stories that we are trying to share about our experiences are received in a way that doesn't serve us well. And that could be if there is a stigma attached to our understanding of the death. And I'm wondering if you encountered that at all. We didn't encounter any resistance at all. And I think part of it too is that she was very uh, aware and conscious and purposeful in the people that she had around her. And I'm sure that there were people that didn't make the cut. Um, I, I'm not certain of that, but I expect just knowing her and she would not have invited people in that we're going to bring that energy. Uh, it would have been quite purposeful on her part and sort of, this is not the time for some politicized argument about the goodness or the rightness of something. And so I didn't see any of that resistance and I can imagine how difficult it might be. And uh, particularly if people come from various kinds of religious backgrounds where uh, the notion of suicide is forbidden and somehow in that belief system would disrupt the soul's transition to where it's meant to go. And um, I was surprised hearing on the news that 7% of deaths in Quebec uh, are through MAID. And a friend of mine asked me, well, why do you think that is? And I said, I think it's a very direct rebellion against the Catholic Church. If I was, you know, a survivor or a, a you know, next generation person resisting Catholic teachings, that would be my act of defiance. So I have I, no idea whether that's real, but that was my immediate yeah, intuitive sense. That's interesting. I think I saw the article that you were mentioning, and that was not on my radar either. Um, but I'm going to reread that and think about that as an act of defiance. Yeah. But, and also not so much in anger as in self-determination. Is, <laughs> uh, is that I am the master of my own experience and... Uh, and therefore, I choose my own belief system. I choose my own way of living and my own way of dying. And again, to bring it back to when we were talking about, you know, midwifery and the entering of life and the exiting of life and thinking about how women are working to have more control about how they're giving birth. It kind of, to me, makes sense 
that we also have control at the end of our lives as well. And to be able to orchestrate that, to create those ceremonies, to make that time as meaningful and as beautiful as it can be. And to be really clear, as all of us who think about grief know, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to grieve. It just means those moments are hopefully going to bring some solace to people as they grieve. And having some time with someone as they approach death. And my other friend who chose not to activate, uh, she was in palliative care for a month or two before she passed. And, and it just became this party room. And, and uh, thankfully, one of the rules of, of, of the palliative care unit is you could have dogs. So as long as she had a dog handler with her, she could have her dog with her. People came, dogs came, children came. And even though it was in COVID and it was managed quite well, uh, she had sleepovers with their girlfriends with bottles of wine, um, you know, again, could define her last months, even though she didn't end up choosing a maid. She had the freedom to be able to define those last encounters with special people. And she asked me to come in and drum with her a few times, which I did. And the nurses were all just fascinated and had thousand questions. And uh, uh, I remember way back when, when I was first getting into doing ceremonial support, going into continuing care to work with a woman that I'd never met. And I was asked to go in. And funnily enough, I had just left the deputy of health chair probably two or three years prior. So when I walked into this facility, that's all they knew me. And here I had all my paraphernalia and my drum and my feathers and all the rest of it. And so the staff didn't know what to do with me. And then there was this whole big skirmish around smudging and fire alarms and all kinds of stuff. And then we ended up finally moving into the ceremony. And my helper that day was a United Church minister. And I remember this woman had a terrible degenerative disease. And it was in the years before May, it was even contemplated. And one of her questions for the journey, although she could barely communicate, is why am I still here? My body's not operating. I can't speak. I can't hear. I can't see. I can't move. Am I going to be trapped in this body forever? And what came out of the shamanic journey is, no, you're not. You're just not finished yet. So she'd had one son commit suicide a year before. She had a remaining son that wasn't finished with his mom yet. Even though she could do so little, she just needed to stay around for him for a little bit longer. But the wonderful part of the story is she'd been very estranged with her family down south. She had a whole plethora of sisters. And in the last weeks of her life, she couldn't speak. She couldn't communicate. But three of her sisters turned up and cared for her for her last two years of life. And had she been able to speak, they would have fought. And she couldn't speak so she could just surrender to their care. So there was a rebuilding of relationship and then she, she passed. And she would have been someone who you know, might have activated made. And if she did, she may have activated before she was done with her son or, or with her sisters. And, um, and so in that case, the fact that she was around probably a month longer than she would have chosen allowed for those completions to occur in her family. I have so much to say. As a recovering Catholic, I want to thank you for the comments about... Um, First of all, the idea of this not needing a broker, you know, to have a relationship with creation. I just love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have lots of, of varying thoughts about medical assistance and dying, and I'm certain that many of them uh, are heavily influenced by um, organized religion. So I really thank you for that, that input. I want to go back to grief again, and I want to modify a question that 
that we were hoping to ask you. I get the real sense that nature and land, of course, is a big participant in shamanic healing and shamanic practice. I would love to hear your thoughts on land as a participant in grief. Absolutely. Um, Each aspect of land has a different quality. And uh, so I think what I'll share is the story of the ashes ceremony we did way deep in the wilderness for part of Manfred's ashes after he passed. And he asked that some of his ashes go to the wilderness. And so I was sitting on the shore and we'd had, you know, guided through journey as to how the ashes were to be distributed. And they were distributed right at the shoreline where the land meets the water, meets the sky, meets the, the fire of all the elements. And we just finished that ceremony and the prayers and involved in it. And there was just four of us on the beach. And I just sat down in a chair and I was invited to uh, actually enter a space of each of the elements. And so first I was told to bring myself into water and literally allow my entire energetic being to dissolve into water and then reconstitute and then do the same into air and reconstitute the same into fire and reconstitute and then deep into earth to reground. And it was just this beautiful kind of invitation. And I felt very clearly it was from Manfred and Spirit inviting me to cleanse and literally at a subatomic particular level, use the elements to assist and lift up that sense of loss and that grief. And so there's many, many different ceremonies and cleansing ceremonies that can occur Um, because grief sometimes gets stuck in the body. And so extraction work is actually surgical intervention in the energy body to remove and neutralize that. So I'm, you know, sort of releasing energy, whether it's grief from my chest or fear, or whether it's blockages in my throat from the tears or whatever it is, and I'm lifting it up and it goes into a candle uh, to neutralize it. So when it goes back out into the world, it goes back out as neutral energy. And so it's like, just get the stuckness out of there and don't even tell me how it got there, why it got there. It's just, if it's not good for me, it's out. So there's that actual energetic surgery and there's all kinds of different energy work that can be so helpful during grief because it needs to move through the body. And similarly, it needs to move through the emotional body. It needs to move through the mind and the thoughts and the way in which the thoughts can get stuck. And it needs to also move through spirit. And uh, so if we think about each of the aspects of self having its own qualities and being able to engage with nature in order to do the clearing and the lightning and literally lifting up the grief process. And that's done through the different ceremonies and through soul loss and soul retrieval and soul exchange and some of those ceremonies that can help us write our relationships, even with someone who's passed on. And one of the roles that I take on is, I call it a death walker role. There's other names in different traditions. And it's, um, somebody will call me up and like my, my sister was just found next to her vehicle and she died very suddenly. Uh, they think it was hard and I need you to check on her. And so I immediately picked up my drum and checked on her and her, her whole soul was in shock. Uh, she didn't know that she had passed and she was literally stuck in her transition. And so I took her by the hand and showed her her body and explained what had happened and helped her kind of get to a place where she could release what she needed to release and move on. And then I checked on her often. It'll take up to four or five days for that transition to occur. 
And so my friend said that when somebody said, well, do you have all the support you need? She said, yeah, I've got so-and-so and so-and-so and so Then I had somebody check on my sister and make sure she made her transition. And the person said, I have a pretty extensive network, but I don't have that person. I don't either, but I think I need one. But you mentioned soul retrieval. Is that what you've described? Is that part of soul retrieval? What, what is soul retrieval? No, that would be accompanying a soul. Uh, which is a a different experience. Soul retrieval is that as we go through life, going right back to conception, we can hit small or large traumas or disruptions that can actually cause a part of our life force or soul to break away and be separate from us. And so if we've gone through a lot of trauma in our life, we can end up with a lot of soul depletion. And there's, again, ceremony to be able to bring those pieces back. So when I first met Manfred, one of the first journeys he did for me, he found eight soul parts all under the age of 12, uh, all chasing me down the road. And he said, I can't bring back any of these soul parts until you'll slow down and actually integrate them. So it took me a year and a half to kind of gear back my life. And finally, when he arrived back in Whitehorse to do a soul retrieval workshop, and I thought, finally, I'll get some of my soul parts back. I had had a squash injury and I was in a cast and on crutches with a blown Achilles tendon. So I met him at the door and I said, so is this slow enough for you? And then I entered into the path of retrieving those soul parts. So when you're journeying for someone, like I was talking to someone just on the phone the other day, explaining soul retrieval. And I said, for example, I, I, you know, like a 19 year old might come and and we may be told some of the circumstances around the soul loss, maybe not. He says, I have a story to tell you about me being 19. So even in the conversation, I had immediately clicked to a place where he had some work to do. And then one of the things that can be so helpful in the cleanup or dying process is soul exchange. So what that is, is where we enter into a soul exchange, literally of life force with people that are close to us. So whether it's our kids or it's our partners or Uh, our parents or whatever, we actually see them as depleted and we offer up part of our life force. They may do the same to us. And unfortunately, we're geared so that I can't use foreign energy. So somebody can give me a life force. I can't use it. And meanwhile, the person who's given it to me is depleted. So you can end up with an unhealthy kind of enmeshment. I call it the Velcro of life, where you, you get stuck with the fact that you've traded so many soul parts back and forth. And so to clean that up, and each person to get back what they are meant to get back in an exchange, then cleans up the interface so it's smoother. So that can really assist grief uh, and the resolution of grief. And sometimes the person who's passed, there can still be soul exchange. And I did one with one woman, and she was just very fresh, very deep grief. And we were doing a soul exchange with her mother and the the gift that came, and sometimes the soul parts will be associated with a gift. The gift that came was the bluebird of happiness. And I said, how can I bring back a bluebird of happiness as a gift for this woman when she's in so much pain? And one of the principles of shamanism is you don't ever question the journey. That sometimes you question, you know, is the right time? to share that or is there a way of sharing it that's gentler but my job is to bring back the journey and to pass it along uh, as cleanly as I can without messing with it and without bringing my ego and my interpretation my extrapolations to it and so I bolstered my courage and brought her this back and she just threw back her head and started to laugh and I said what is it she said my mother's kitchen was bluebird everything 
And she said the teapot was a bluebird and the tea towels were a bluebird and the aprons were bluebirds. And, and so again, I had no experience with her mother, would never have known any of that. And had I judged the journey, had I judged the gift as being somehow disrespectful, I would have shortchanged her in a big way. In a big way. Oh, what a beautiful story. So, Gay, as someone who is a death walker, who is a shamanic practitioner, who has immense respect from what I can gather for the journey for life, do you ever think about your own dying and what might be important to you at the end of your life? Oh, absolutely. And I would want to do it similar to my friend, but I'm also a bit of a control freak. And I have my preferences in terms of how I want things to be shaped. And so uh, the idea of being able to contribute to that, and I was actually giving some thought to the other day of if I was going to build a playlist, what would be on it? Would it be new songs? Would it be old songs? Would it be rock and roll or spiritual work or likely all of the above? You know, it's likely to be as diverse as I am. And uh, so I think with anyone, like I just turned 69, but it's at a stage of life where I've lost friends and I'm losing friends in, in my age category and uh, and that it's important to prepare my loved ones. And hopefully I'll be like my mother. She stepped out of the shower and died literally in her track. She was almost 94. And she said, uh, I don't want another birthday. And she died, I think, three days before her birthday, her 94th birthday. And so I'd be quite happy to just, as she said, I'm just going to pop off one day. And I think she would have preferred to pop off in her bed as opposed to in her bathroom, uh, stepping out of the shower. But, you know, she, you don't always get what you want. But she'd also spent, even though she wasn't looking at maid, it spent years preparing us. My father passed in 2012. And so she had a number of years after he passed to be adjusted to widowhood after many years of marriage very, very well and renovated the whole house that was in our house right until her passing. And so, again, she had her own sort of, I think, arrangement, her own contract with the universe that said it's not going to be a long lingering death, as it was when my father died of dementia, as well as some other things. And it was a very, very difficult death, and it was not well supported. And we were at war with the system in all kinds of ways that were super painful. And so one of these days, I'll write that up because I just haven't been able to even face living that story again because it was so difficult. I'm one of four sisters, and, uh, and it took all of our capacity to kind of get through that. And my child is an only child. And so I want to make sure that it's easy for her, because she doesn't have siblings to, to depend on. And thankfully, I've got lots of dear friends that will step up to play the role. And part of that role is helping me to enter that space, my death. I can't do that with my family. But I know that you have what it takes to enter that space with me as being fearless. So that's been my experience with elders often is they ask the impossible with a smile and expect you to just show up and, and do it. And in that case, it was just a beautiful request because it meant that I had to unpack any fear that I had really about my own death in order to show up in the space that she asked me to show up in. And, uh, and so I think that's what some of us, that's a role that we played with our friend with Maid as well, is that we show up with that ease and that comfort with death to normalize. Of course, everybody sits around and plans five ceremonies for the death. You know, let's just do it your way. 
and and there wasn't it wasn't riddled with with fear and disruption and stuckness in ourselves. We could show up as a a clean, clear, and loving instrument for her to make that happen the way she chose to make. And just one thing I forgot to mention is that her ceremony was held in the healing room at the hospital, and this is a beautiful space dedicated to ceremony. Uh, that is part of the Whitehorse General Hospital. And so she was able to stay in her hospital bed right through, and she was able to be supported if need be within that environment. And then part of the ceremony was actually the funeral home people that turned up, and they came in kind of a back door of the healing room, and they were just so gentle and so respectful, and they invited everyone to help wrap her body. And, and so the ceremony wasn't over with the death. The ceremony went on and they actually just walked through the door and participated in it. It's just beautiful. And so it matters, uh, those people, because they could have come in and disrupted everything that we've been in, in terms of ceremonial space for a couple of hours. They didn't. It was lovely. That fluidity is so essential in terms of recognizing that it's a moving process. Um, the different ceremonies, the different ways we are in terms of understanding what's happening, in terms of figuring out our grieving experiences, how to support people. And it's a human experience. So it's yes. going to be imperfect. And it's going to be painful at stages. It's going to be joyful at other stages. And it's communal because that's who we are as humans. Uh, so it's, it's, it, there's nothing perfect about it at all. No, there isn't. There isn't. Is there anything, Gay, that you were hoping that we'd talk about today in our conversation that we haven't touched on yet? Uh, well, the, the issue of, of maiden mental health, I think that we do as a society need to be so careful uh, because at the same time as this was going on, I was supporting a young man in his 20s that was virtually mentally ill and in so much pain. And was actually considering MAID and was in a jurisdiction where that would have been accessible. And thankfully, the process was a long and difficult process because he's doing much, much better. And he actually has a life ahead of him. And he finally, after years of failed supports and failed medication and failed services, the magical pieces came together, as well as probably him just getting a bit older. Uh, there was just a bunch of pieces that came together. So that the quality of life is so different than uh, it was even three years ago. And as much as I loved him and love him dearly, uh, he was in so much pain, I, I could easily see why he'd just want to end it. And I'm just so glad that he, uh, you know, we kept on managing that, you know, is he going to suicide? Because that was sort of a threat for a number of years. And thankfully, he had super loving parents and, you know, that just kept showing up in his life, but that turned the tide. So especially with young people, I've, you know, worked in psychiatry and where we've seen literally miraculous recoveries. Um, I remember working with one 15-year-old in a deep psychotic break in the hospital as a 20-year-old student. I wasn't much older than him. His hockey coach, his parents, and his girlfriend just all turned on him at once, and his bottom just fell out of his life. And they were going to start electroshock therapy. This is back in the 70s. And thankfully, I had a, a progressive uh, nursing instructor and we went up against the system, not the first time, not the last time, and won him uh, two weeks. And in two weeks, he was discharged. 
And there was just this miraculous kind of coming back together of the psyche. So I think that we need to be very careful about that. And certainly in my own kind of instructions at the end of life, if indeed I'm old and my brain isn't functioning anymore, and part of that is mental health issues and the hope for recovery because of actual changes to the brain structure, which we're learning more and more about, uh, is such that hope, you know, is reasonably faint, then absolutely no problem. But for young people, I think we need to be very careful because I've seen some fairly dramatic right turns occur in someone's mental health that allows them maybe, again, not a perfect, uh, but a much a substantially improved quality of life without constant psychic and existential pain. I agree. I think that is going to be something that Canadians should wrestle with over the next little bit and to increase how we support people with mental health and to do that better. And uh, we spoke um, previously with Helen Long from Dying with Dignity Canada, and she had a really strong call to action that resonated with me and said that it's not just about medical assistance and dying that needs to step up for people with mental health diagnoses and challenges. It's all of society so that we can do both well. And then similarly with our social safety nets, that people should not be dying of poverty. Yes. And the idea that someone can't access the care that they need in order to live a decent quality of life when it's a reasonably expected level of support that is needed. That just breaks my heart because in a society such as ours, we should be able to show up to be able to assist in people getting the care that they need. So I just was involved in the policy sphere enough to know that there are ways in which our society could be just do a lot better in terms of caring for the most vulnerable. And someone should not be contemplating made because of a lack of food on the table, roof over their head, or basic, you know, sort of care. I saw a piece, it was your piece with the woman in the wheelchair, and it was just heartbreaking to see that somebody would be considering that, especially someone who has uh, young children in her life, just because the system can't respond to reasonably expected care requirements. Like, how tough is it? to make sure that somebody in a wheelchair can get out of bed at eight o'clock in the morning. Like that's not yeah. rocket science. It really reminded me of a situation that I've been supporting here in Whitehorse where this young woman had written with a chronic illness and could not get home care organized. And they'd say, well, what do you mean you have to pee more than once in 24 hours? And at one point in her care, it required like four people to be able to assist her with that and that she wasn't someone that was a good candidate for alternatives. And Pain control was a pain. So part of my role was assisting and trying to negotiate a self-managed care agreement so she could basically get out of the home care just circus of trying to get her needs met and actually hire her own staff, which, as I understand, that young woman did as well. You're right. You're right. So thinking about your work as a death walker, as a shamanic practitioner, as someone who's worked a lot in healthcare policy in Greece, as a nurse, what do you hope for thinking about end of life for Canadians? I hope that we're able to lift up our society and support the most vulnerable so that they have as many choices as we can make available. And at one point in the palliative care community, uh, probably 10 years ago, we were beginning to predict what we saw as the coming tsunami of death. I'm a baby boomer. I'm right in the middle of the baby 
her age. And I recognize I may not live as long as my mother. I'm unlikely to live that long. So there's going to be two decades where our parents and us might be dying at the same time. So you've got this tsunami of death. And it's like, we've got to figure out not only how to die better, but how to die cheaper and faster. I don't want anybody spending half of my healthcare budget in the last six months of my life. Like talk about a really unwise return on investment. And I know that sounds harsh, but the deep ethical inquiries, uh, including making sure that Maine is available, accessible, and comfortable uh, for people who choose that option, and that as a society, we, we allow and support that self-determination right to the end and beyond. Uh, and we do that in a way that isn't full of judgment and full of you know, old beliefs for that person that are not relevant. But also understanding we have an incredibly diverse society and it's not going to be for everyone and no one should be forced into that decision. Again, there has to be lots of other options, including darn good palliative care that lets your dogs in. Darn good palliative care that lets your dogs in. Yes. Gay, I have so appreciated our conversation today. I have learned so much. I have so much that I need to percolate on and consider. And I am so glad. I want to do a shout out to Dr. Mayalu Kelly, who connected us for our conversation today. And I hear your name regularly because I think I get the privilege of crossing paths with some of those fabulous women who drum with you. This has been an absolute treat. So thank you so very much. And thank you uh, for all of the work that both of you do in this field. Well, thank you. And please pass along our gratitude to your friends who gave permission for you to share of some of your experiences today as well. Thanks so much, Gay. Take good care. Will do. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Wow, Kathy, you were absolutely right. I truly appreciated our conversation today with Gay Hansen. I didn't know how little I understood about shamanic practices and how beneficial they can be both within the grieving process and at the end of life. Absolutely. So much of what Gay shared with us was just incredibly enlightening. And I love that she used language that really sort of took another approach to what was going on. I love that the White Horse General Hospital has a healing room in a hospital in this building that, you know, really is sort of there to be a healing space, there's this whole other kind of component or facet of healing that's paid attention to. I really like that. And a healing space where people can die, right? And I think that is linked with, again, what really resonated with me was engaged use of language, this idea of a maid ceremony as opposed to a maid procedure. And I just, I want to go back and listen to this podcast again and hear more about her story and just really learn from it. She used a phrase, uh, again, because you and I love words, legacy of capacity. She talked about her friend building that capacity for the people that she left behind to communicate with one another. Well, you out there listening, do you know, do you think about somebody? Do you feel that we should really have a conversation with somebody that you'd like to tell us all about? You can find us at disruptingdeath.ca and see our contact information there because we would love to hear about what you would like to hear. So please share our podcast, do give us a review, and let's keep the conversation going. Till next time.
Stop.